Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. I'm going to keep going with uh, our money series. Uh, We're going to do part three today. And uh, last week we talked about uh, work and the fact that uh, God is a worker and that we are made in God's image. And as uh, image bearers of God, we are to work. And we're going to work in heaven and it's going to be wonderful. And then at the end of the message, we looked at this whole thing of how actually work is about mission. We're not just working so we can accumulate things for ourselves, but actually Uh, One of the reasons the Bible teaches that we are to work is so that we can provide for ourselves and then so that we can give uh, to others. Today I want to, today's message is is married in many ways uh, to last week's message. And the reason it's married together is because as I finished the message last week with the Great Commission and work is about mission, that we should work hard to make money in order to care for others and advance uh, the Great Commission. Uh, The fact of the matter is that many people Uh, this is very true in our culture, but it's also very true in the church, is that many people actually do work hard, and they actually do make a decent salary. Of course, there are some who are just poor. They don't make very much money. They work hard. And for that reason, they aren't able to give or give very much to the Great Commission. But there actually are many people in the church who do work hard, and they still aren't able to give to those in need, and they still aren't able to give or fund the Great Commission. They're not able to live their lives on mission, Um, Because somewhere between the hard work and the generosity and living on mission, there is this hole of debt and materialism. And so they have the hard work part down. We looked at that last week, and that's a very important part of being human and being image bearer of God. We've got to be workers. And they have that part down, but they don't have the living on mission part down. They might be making $50,000, $60,000 a year or more, and yet they're living paycheck to paycheck. This is becoming more and more common in our society. It's also common uh, in the church. And, uh, and so when all the money you make is tied up in paying off debt for stuff, you are not truly free to serve God. I want to say that again. When all of the money you make is tied up in paying off debt for stuff, you are not truly free to serve God. You are not truly free to help others. You are not truly free to live your life and fund the Great Commission. And so the Bible actually talks a lot about debt. And so today's message is going to be about debt. It's going to be about uh, contentment. It's going to be about living our lives on mission and some of the sickness, the spiritual moral sickness that drives many people into debt. But the Bible has a lot to say about debt. And Proverbs 22 verse 7 says this, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Okay, the borrower is the slave of the lender. The Bible talks often about uh, debt and relating it into slavery. Okay, um, now before we go any further, of course, I have to make a little caveat, um, and uh, we will talk a little bit about this beginning before we get because Jesus is going to say some 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 tough things about money and possessions. But before we get there, I just have to say this because uh, some of you are going, "Whoa!" I already feel guilty because I'm pretty sure pretty much all of us here today owes money or many of us do anyway, I still, my wife and I still owe uh, money for a couple of years yet on our house, okay? And so the first thing I want to say is that not all debt is created equal, okay? And when the Bible condemns debt and talks about debt as slavery, there are certain kinds of debt that are bad debt, and there are certain kinds of debt, which I'll get to in just a couple minutes, that are, that are good debt, and I use quotation marks there, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But overall, I just want to set the table here 
is that the Bible talks about debt in terms of it being slavery and that it will keep you from being able to live your life on a mission. And so Romans 13, verse 8, Paul says this, Owe no one anything. So very practical advice there, but notice now how he's going to turn it, he's going to tie it together with love and ministry. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Notice how Paul ties this together with our mission to love people and care for needs. Okay? When you owe money to all kinds of people and you're in debt, you are not free to really love and care for people. Because the money that could be used or the freedom that could be used to bless others, to serve others, actually is owned by someone else, by the people you are in debt to. So he says, owe no one anything. That way you can be free. Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled uh, the law, okay? And again, I wonder how many Christians today, though, and I, I don't have to wonder too much. I know it's many. Many Christians today are enslaved to debt and as a result are not free to really live out the Great Commission the way God is calling us to. They're not free to live their lives on mission. And I believe there's a sickness. There's a, there's a moral sickness that Jesus is going to really hit hard in a sermon in Luke 12 that we're going to get to. But before we do, we have to take a pause and I just have to talk a little bit more specifically, practically, about the difference between good debt and bad debt. Because I don't want you guys hearing the wrong things. When we get into Jesus' message, I love Jesus, and he pulls no punches. I don't want the wrong people getting punched, okay? And I don't want us misconstruing what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying, okay? So we're going to take a couple of minutes here, and, and this is not going to be a financial planning seminar. I'm not an expert in that. So I'm going to give some very broad strokes, very, very broad strokes. And then we're going to get to the heart of the issue because I believe ultimately the problem with many Christians' finances is not so much with the practical side of things, even though that is a problem and there does need to be teaching there, but it's fueled by heart issues. And I think if we get our heart issues right, the finances in many ways will, will work themselves out or at least the practical stuff is easy to deal with if you deal with the heart stuff. But let's just talk briefly about the difference between, quote-unquote, good debt and bad debt, okay? Because there is different kinds of debt and the Bible is not speaking about the good kinds, okay? So when the Bible speaks strongly about debt, it is not speaking about the following uh, kinds of things. First of all, uh, it is not talking about investments that enable you to work and or increase your productivity, okay? This is very important. And again, many people today, uh, they don't have an understanding that there's different kinds of debt. So for example, a farmer who buys, who has to borrow money to buy a tractor, that is very different than if a young person goes out and borrows a bunch of money to buy a really nice stereo system. Now some of you are going, what? If that's different, right? The, the person who borrows a bunch of money to buy a consumer good like a stereo system, that money has been, I mean, you get to listen to some very good music, some very good vibes, if you will, um, but um, that money has been flushed down the toilet, okay, in a way, because you, you can listen to music, but you can't get it back, okay? But a farmer who borrows money for a tractor, this is a very different thing because the, the thing he's borrowed money for, that tractor, is actually going to make him money back. He, he had to borrow that money in order to buy something in order to be able to do the work he needs to do. That is a very different kind of debt. This kind of debt on a tractor is actually going to make him more money. It's going to pay for itself and keep the thing going. Again, assuming 
brackets there, it's not too risky or too large for your capacity to handle, of course. Um, buying a stereo or something like that, that's a, that's a very different kind of thing. So when the Bible talks about being enslaved to debt, certainly, you know, a trucker who needs to borrow money for a truck or a business person who needs to borrow money to buy whatever it is, uh, a, a building or whatever the things they need to do in their business in order to be able to run their business, that, that, is, uh, that is what I would say is good debt. Now, again, I, I put good in quotations only because I don't want anybody to get the impression here that I'm encouraging you all to go out and borrow a bunch of money. Okay? Ultimately, it's still best to not be in debt. If you can, if you can buy something outright and not have to borrow money for it, that's wonderful, okay? And uh, even an investment can go sour. So I put good in quotation marks just in the, case, in, in the sense that nothing here on earth is ever a sure deal, okay? And, and all debt, ultimately, it's always good to have the truck paid off or the tractor paid off or whatever it is, okay? But certainly good in the sense that it's very different than bad debt and it's necessary often to do work. Uh, a second thing, and again, this is not comprehensive, this is not comprehensive, but I'm giving broad strokes. And it's amazing to me how many people, especially young people these days, uh, have very little wisdom with regards to finances or what the Bible says about finances, okay? So this is important that we set the table before we get into Jesus' sermon. A second kind of good debt would be for things necessary investments uh, like a house, okay? And I've, I've underlined a couple of words there. I want you to notice investment and I want you to notice uh, affordable, okay? And, uh, and so just to explain, I, I touched about a little bit on this in the first one, but an investment is something where you put your money into it and you can get your money back out. It either makes you money or you can get your money back out of it. That's very different than buying a car, for example, okay? So some of you young people maybe need to be writing this down, I'm not sure. But again, there's a big difference between borrowing money for something like a house and borrowing money for something like a car. If you borrow $200,000, let's say, to, to buy a house, okay? Yes, you've borrowed the money, but in a sense, that money hasn't gone anywhere. It's gone into your house. You can get it back if you sell it, okay? Again, good being in quotation marks. You could have a housing crash. You could have all kinds of things and not be able to get it out. But as a general rule, you've put your money into something where you can get it back or maybe it even makes you a little bit of money. That's very different than if you borrow $200,000 to, to, to buy a fleet of, of a few Cadillacs, okay? And you might like driving a different one every day, but you don't get that five years from now, you sell your house, you can get your $200,000 back, maybe you can get some more. Five years from now, you sell your five Cadillacs and you don't get $200,000 back, okay? You've been throwing $100 bills out the window, okay, and driving around town, you're losing money, okay? So there's a very big difference between borrowing money for something like a house where, you, where the money goes into it, it doesn't disappear really, and putting your money into a consumer item like a vehicle or those sorts of things. So when the Bible talks about being a slave to debt, it's not talking about something where you've borrowed money to where actually you can get that money out. Yes, you're in debt, but really you have an investment there, something to show for it. Does that make sense? Okay, now that's where we get to the second one underlying there, affordable, assuming it's affordable. I know if I just left it at investment, some of you would go, oh, any house is an investment, okay? In that case, I'm going to buy a million-dollar house or a $500,000 house because Chris said in a message from stage that I'm putting my money into something, I can get it back, so I'm going to buy a $500,000 house or whatever. Well, assuming that that house might be good debt, assuming it's affordable for you, it's within your means, Someone who makes $50,000 a year and buys a $500,000 house 
The payments are going to be so big, that house is going to be like a weight around your neck. You will not be able to give to those in need or live for mission. And that's what this entire message is about. In fact, that's what this message series is about. It's about the fact that God has given us money for a reason. We're here to live for a mission. So if you buy a house that you can't afford, you might say, well, that's an investment because my money's in there. Well, it might be, but if the investment is too big for your budget, you now have a weight around your neck that will absolutely keep you from having anything left over to actually live for a mission. You will be living for your house. And at the end of your life, you won't be able to show Jesus that you live for a mission. You will be able to show him a house and your house doesn't get to go to heaven with you. For some of you, you're going, yes. And for some of you are going, oh. So let me just get super practical here for just a minute. Because again, sometimes I think if I speak vaguely, for some of you this is no issue. You know what you're doing with money. You have wisdom. For too many of you, that's not the case. So for those of you, I'll just give something to hang on to. We're going to get to Jesus' message in just a moment. But I feel like we need to have something to hang on to just a little bit. Something to really sink our teeth into before we get into Jesus' message on money and possession. So let's just get super practical for a moment because housing costs are such a big deal for so many families and people in our church and our culture. Common banking advice states that you should not... I looked up a few different sites in the Royal Bank of Canada, all that sort of stuff. Common banking advice states that you should not take up more than 28 to 32% of your gross income, that's, bef- that's before taxes, uh, with house payments, Okay. So you're, you're wondering, what does that mean, affordable? I underlined affordable before. This is what Canadian banking advice would be. They would say, an affordable house is one that doesn't take up more than 28 to 32% of your gross income. For the average Canadian, depending on your salary, your, your taxes and stuff, that's about 38 to 43% of your take-home pay. Now, you say, okay, well, that, that sounds like good advice. So you can probably get a mortgage if you're within those numbers, okay? But now let me mention something to you, because many people will just go and take out the maximum mortgage they can get at the bank. Okay, so let me just tell you something about these numbers and about banks. First thing you need to know is banks, last I checked, don't give two cents worth for the Great Commission. Right? Like the Royal Bank of Canada, they do not have in their mission statement, do the Great Commission. If anything, yeah, it certainly isn't that. Right? And I'm not criticizing the Royal Bank, okay? None of the big banks. That's not what they're there for. They're there to make money, and the more you borrow from them, the more money they make. Okay? So that might, be fine advi- that might be fine advice if all, you're tr- if all you're trying to figure out is what's the biggest house I can possibly live in here on this earth and afford it in my budget. But actually, Jesus, as we're going to see in this sermon, wants us to live on mission, which means you don't necessarily buy the biggest house you can possibly afford according to a bank. You actually want to live so far within your means that you have stuff left over to give to those in need and to fund the Great Commission and to live your life with a mission, right? It's not just about what's the biggest possible house I can afford. It's about I'm here for a reason, and the reason isn't my house. Which is why I really like the advice. Uh, A man by the name of Dave Ramsey, he's a highly respected Christian financial advisor. And uh, some of you may want to write his name down. You can go look. He's got a website. He's got tons and tons of materials really practical advice on all kinds of things, finances, and he's trusted by pastors and churches and Christian leaders across North America. He's a really good guy, okay? And, uh, but this is what he recommends. Now, notice how his advice is quite a bit different than what a bank's advice is. His advice is you buy a house if you can pay it off in 15 years or less, and it eats up 25% or less of your take-home pay, okay? 
And the reason is, now I guess some of you guys are going, yeah, but I can afford more. Yes, that is exactly the point. Because as a Christian financial advisor, his desire, just like the Bible's is in Jesus for your life, is that you won't live just for your house. You'll actually live for a mission beyond your house. You live for a mission beyond that. You're not just barely trying to make your payments. You're trying to give. You're trying to live for generosity. You're trying to live for mission. And here's my point. If 40 or 50% or in the high 30s percent of your take-home pay is all going straight into your house payment, you haven't put food on the table for your kids. You haven't put gas in the car. You haven't done any of those things. You haven't paid for, you know, appliances that break down. You haven't done any of those things. How much left over are you going to have to actually do anything that Jesus calls you to do in the New Testament over and over and over again where it talks about giving and giving generously and living for a mission? You're not going to have that freedom if you're maxed out, right? So let's go now and see, setting the table just a little bit there, Let's now go and see what Jesus has to say about money and possessions in, in a sermon on Luke 12. And he, Jesus speaks lots about money and possessions, but we're just going to take one message. Luke 12 is a lengthy one, starting in verse 13. And uh, let's see what Jesus has to say to us here today. Verse 13. And I love how Jesus, I have to work so hard to prepare a message. And then, and then try my best to give it in a way that hopefully God can use and you guys can understand. I love how Jesus will just go off the cuff and have the most amazing sermons in response to a question, you know, right in the moment. And that's what happens here, okay? He's not consulting notes like me. He's a way better preacher. I can hardly wait till heaven, okay? It's going to be amazing. But uh, anyway, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, imagine they had to shout it out because there's people all around, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said, that's as Jesus still speaking, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life. Let, let the words of Jesus sink into your hearts. Let the words of Jesus sink into your hearts here this morning. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Let that sink in. Take care. Jesus is speaking to us here this morning. Take care. And be, against your, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Okay? In other words, you might be trapped in a cycle of thinking you need a certain level or size of house. A certain level, standard of living, because everybody around you lives at that, or all of your friends live at a certain standard of living, certain size. So it, you, you're like a fish in the water. You don't, you don't even notice that you're in water. You don't notice that you have these expectations, and it's all based on the people around you. It's not based on what you actually need. It's based on the people around you. And so now you're chasing that goal, and Jesus says, actually, when you get to heaven, the size of your house doesn't matter. There's no question in heaven when you stand before Jesus, by the way, how big was your house? Oh, neat. Okay? And by the way, that goes both ways, small or big. You don't get brownie points for, for, for living in smaller. For those of you who are living in a small house and thinking, you're like, well, this is all about to the rich people. Hey, no, no, no. <laughs> so Jesus is going to spank both sides of the bottoms today, the poor and the rich. <laughs> but you don't get brownie points for a small house. You don't go to Jesus and say, I lived in a small house, look how much I love you. And Jesus said, hey, it doesn't matter anything about your house. And it doesn't matter to him if you have a big house and you stand for him. Look, I had a big house. He says, you don't get to bring it with you. Your life is not measured by your possessions. Jesus does not, that doesn't matter to him. 
So if you can afford a big house, live in it. And again, that's, I want to say this again because I'm going to say this multiple times because I don't want anyone to hear me saying something I'm not saying. This is not a message. I preached this. The first message of the series, we talked about the fact that there are many very rich people here who are saints. Abraham and David and Hezekiah and Nicodemus, we go on and on. There's many very wealthy people who are saints, godly people. There's many poor people. Okay? Do not hear me saying today at any point that to have a small house is more spiritual than a big house. Okay? If you can, if it's within your means, if it's affordable and it's within your means and you can live in a million dollar home and have lots left over to live your life on mission and it's not a stress to the budget and you're giving, 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 then live in a million dollar home and use that million dollar home for Jesus. And if you can only afford a $200,000 home, and that's what you have to live in in order to have stuff left over to live on mission, then live in a $200,000 home. The point of this message is, if you can only afford a $200,000 home, don't live in a $500,000 home because it will keep you from living for Jesus. Your life does not consist in your possessions. Life is not measured by the size of your house. And I want you to notice a word there, a very important word. Uh, second last line there, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Covetousness is the spiritual disease that is derailing. It is a moral disease in the heart that is affecting many Christians. Well, it's, it's, it's absolutely destroying our culture. But then it's, it's in the church as well, and it's keeping many Christians from living their lives on a mission. Covetousness is the constant desire for more. The constant, insatiable desire for bigger, nicer, more. And it's never satisfied. You get that next thing, you get that nicer upgrade, you get that bigger house, and you enjoy it for whatever, how long, a week or two or a month or two, and then already you're on, I need the next thing. And it's driven, it's fueled by comparison. How much of our culture is fueled by comparison? It's fueled by comparison. Everywhere I go, they have this, they have that, they have this. And now it's no longer a want, it's a need. I now must have this. It's covetousness. Jesus, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. It's driven by comparing yourself to others. A, a little story, I've shared this before. But I think it just illustrates how wired we are as human beings to compare. And not all of this is bad, but very easily that comparing turns into covetousness very easily. And that's why Jesus says, be on your guard against it. But uh, a story I've shared before, but LaDon and I, when we were first married, we spent our first year in Seoul, South Korea, teaching English as a second language. And, uh, and so Seoul is a very densely populated city. In fact, I went online yesterday to a world uh, population website and I wanted to look up my numbers again just to make sure I, I was on, on board. And the official, Seoul's official population is 10 million people, but actually that's just because the boundaries of official Seoul don't cover nearly as much as what Seoul really is. And so Seoul, South Korea, if you look at what the actual numbers of the, of the city are, it's about 25.6 million people and it's all crammed into a ring of mountains and so it, it can't spread out very far. And so actually the, the population density of Seoul, South Korea is actually twice as dense as New York City, okay? And anyone who's been to New York City, you know it's crammed. That's a lot of people crammed together. Seoul City is, is twice that many in terms of density. And so it, it is, uh, it, you're just constantly swimming in a sea of people. I mean, you go to the mall on a weekend in Seoul and literally you would be in a mall with people all around you. You want to go to that store over there and you just sort of wiggle your way over. My wife would be kind of in my armpit and we would just sort of try to head over there. 
Like, I'm, I'm not even exaggerating. It's, it's that squished. People everywhere. You're, you're stepping on them. You're hugging them. You're squished in with them at, at all times, okay? And so one of the things in Seoul, the people have uh, all kinds of Western amenities and, and, and comforts. But one thing nobody has in Seoul is space, okay? Space is a premium, okay? You don't see open-air parking lots. I never saw one in our entire year there. Everything is stacked underground or on top of buildings. They've got these little tall, skinny buildings that are like Ferris wheels for cars. You put your car in there, and then it goes up, and when you want it back, you press a button, and it comes down. You take, like, literally, it's that squish. They just don't have space. And so everybody in Seoul lives in a tiny apartment, okay? Stacks and stacks of high-rise apartments. That's, that's where people live. And so we lived in a tiny apartment, and our apartment had four rooms, okay? The first room was the entryway, which also had the kitchen sink and a counter, okay? Then beside the entryway, which had the kitchen sink and a counter, uh, was a little room that we used for eating. You wouldn't really be able to have people over, but the two of us could eat in there, and it also had the closet. Then you had a bathroom, thankfully, and then you had, I guess you could call it a, a living room, but it was sort of a bedroom living room where our bed was, and there was also a couch there, but the couch basically touched almost the bed, so you really, you really, it was very difficult to have people over if you could have more. It was a tiny apartment. I wish I knew what the square footage was. It was tiny. But here's the thing. The whole year we were there, we never, taught, we never talked about how tiny an apartment we lived in. We didn't even really think about it. It's like we went around telling people, we live in a tiny apartment. And the reason we never talked about being in a tiny apartment, the reason we didn't even really feel like we were in a tiny apartment was because everybody in Seoul lives in a tiny apartment. If you told people in Seoul, Korea, that you lived in a tiny apartment, they would say, what? They would be imagining like a mouse hole, okay? <laughs> like, what would I, like, everybody is in tiny. So you don't even think about it. You just live like that, okay? So we lived like that for a year, and we thought we were living high on the hog. We came back here to Steinbeck. We got a tiny apartment on Giesbrick Street here in Steinbach, and I, I wish I could go back and, and figure out the dimensions of that place, but uh, maybe it was uh, 400 to 500 square feet. It had a, a tiny little kitchen, a uh, tiny little kitchen, like really tiny, and a little living room on the top floor, and in, in the, there was a second floor, and you had a bedroom and a, and a bathroom down there. It was very small. But you know the interesting thing is we came back from Korea, and that place did not feel small to us. It felt like plenty of space, plenty of space. It was like a mansion. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it felt big for exactly one month. You say, well, what happened after a month? You must have started having kids. That, uh, this is actually the interesting thing. No, we were a couple of years away from having kids yet. Nothing in our life situation had changed. We spent a whole year in Korea in a tiny apartment and didn't talk all the time about how tiny it was. We came home here and lived in a tiny apartment, and it felt big compared to what we were in Korea, and nothing in our life situation changed. But it took about a month, and all of a sudden it didn't feel big anymore. Why didn't it feel big anymore? I'll tell you why. Because nobody else lives in an apartment that small. <laughs> so you visit everybody else's houses, and you go, all of a sudden, what felt big? We didn't add any kids. We didn't change our lifestyle at all. But all of a sudden, what felt big to us coming home from Seoul, Korea, suddenly feels small. Why? Because nobody else lives in that small amount of space. Now again, not bad. Some of you are thinking, well, here you are again. You're preaching that we got to be all living in a small shack. No, we lived there for a year. And we built a house, and that's the house we still live in today. Okay? It's great to have more space. We've got four kids now. You can do lots of ministry with space that you can't do without. You can show lots of hospitality and love people. Absolutely. This is not about big or small. My point in sharing the story is this. We human beings are wired to compare. We're wired for it. 
And that comparing isn't always bad, but a lot of it in our culture and in the church very quickly turns to something called covetousness, which is the constant craving for more without being able to be thankful for what I have. And so Jesus says, take care. Look at the line before, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. You, a lot of people, they think, when we think of covetousness or materialism, we would think of these as sort of kind of white-collar sins. Or, yeah, it's bad. We shouldn't be covetousness. That's a, but if you want to talk about a bad sin, let's talk about doing drugs, or let's talk about sexual sins. Like what those guys are, are, are confessing at Conquer, those are serious sins. You know, covetousness, well, I shouldn't do it. It's kind of a, it's, that's not good. Do you know that Jesus condemns covetousness and greed in, in, in the Gospels far more than sexual sin? I'm not, I'm not saying that greed is worse, okay? Sexual sin is bad enough, and we've got to deal with that, absolutely. What I'm saying is there's no two-tier system. Covetousness is okay, don't worry about it. Covetousness is a very serious thing to Jesus because it will derail you from living your life on a mission, and you will end up wasting your life living for possessions instead of for what really matters. You will waste your life. And so Jesus keeps preaching. And let's see where he goes now. Verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Let's pause it for just a moment. The problem in this parable is not that this rich man was successful or that he was expanding his business. Not at all. We talked about that last week. You know, God has gifted some people to make money and be successful. Work hard and use it for the kingdom. The problem with this rich man is not that he's been successful. It's that he's living for that success and spending it all on himself. But God didn't give him the gift to be successful in order for him to be greedy. He gave it to him for him to live on mission. And so Jesus continues here and he says, and the rich man says, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Again, the problem in this parable is not that the rich man was rich. I've showed you many examples in here, Abraham, David, and all the rest, of godly people who were blessed by God and who were very rich. The problem is not that this man was rich. It was that he was rich towards himself and he was not rich in the things of God. Now, you might be sitting here today and you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not like that rich man. I'm not rich, okay? Remember again, it's true. Some of you here today are not rich. But many in our culture are rich by any of the standards of Jesus' day, what they were thinking of when they talk about a rich man. Many people in our culture would be rich. The second thing is this. I wonder how many of us, because of covetousness, have so weighed ourselves down with payments and debt because of our longings for the things of this world that we too, just like this rich man, are, are rich in things to ourselves. We are rich in payments for stuff. But we are not rich towards God and the things of God in his kingdom. That's a warning. And so Jesus keeps going on in his sermon here. And he says this, and, and by the way, well, we'll get to that. Let's just, I'll just read his words and let him speak. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, 
Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. I want you to notice here, Jesus actually isn't mad. He actually has our best interest in mind. He's not, he's not ticked off here. He says, actually he says, guys, do not be anxious about your life. Now there's two kinds of anxiety when it comes to money. There's the anxiety that comes from being poor and, and legitimately poor. Like you're not poor because of covetousness. You're just working as hard as you can to make ends meet and it's actually difficult to make it. There's an anxiety that comes with that and Jesus is going to speak to that anxiety. But there's another anxiety and that is the anxiety that is fueled by covetousness. It's an anxiety that's fueled by comparing. And it starts with, I don't have as nice stuff as everybody else. I don't have as nice a house. I don't have as nice decorations. I don't have as nice furniture. I don't have as nice car. I don't have as nice vacations. How come so-and-so goes all over the world, they enjoy all these things, and I can't? And there's an anxiety, a stress that comes from that. And then there's the secondary anxiety, which is, now I'm anxious because I'm trying to keep up with everybody. Subconsciously, I don't think of it as keeping up, but I am trying to keep up. I want to have just as nice a house as everybody else, and so I'm going to pay for a bigger house, and I'm going to pay for more of this. I'm going to pay to do this because everybody else is doing it. And now I have payment after payment after payment, and my budget is right max, and there's no margin for generosity or mission. And that's also an anxiety. And Jesus actually came to set us free. He said, do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious. Why? Look at this. Verse 23, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? Two kinds of people Jesus is speaking to. To the coveters, to the coveters, Jesus says life is more than clothing. It's more than how nice the clothes are that you're wearing. To the coveters we could add in there, Life is more than, than how nice and how big your house is. To the coverers, he says, it's more than just how, you, do you have all the trappings of a nice life? Life is more than that. To the coverers, he says, you can put that anxiety down. Life isn't measured by your stuff. And to the poor, he offers these gracious words. He says, your father even takes care of the ugly ravens. He doesn't say ugly. I just think they're ugly. He probably thinks they're beautiful. I should probably be careful what I say. But he made them, right? I just don't like them. But uh, he says, consider the ravens. To the coveter, he says, you can, you can drop the comparing. It's not how good you look. It's not how nice you live. It's not measured by that. To the poor, he says, I take care of the birds. You don't think I'll take care of you? This last January, it was a Monday morning, and the sun was already up, but it was a very cold morning. It must have been somewhere minus 20s, maybe close to minus 30, I don't remember, but it was very cold. And I remember looking out our front bedroom window, and the sun was still low in the sky, and I remember seeing this little sparrow uh, flitting around in one of our front uh, mugo pines alongside the driveway. And I remember thinking, uh, what are you doing here? And then my next thought was, like, how is that little bird surviving? in that cold. I mean, just tiny, right? And he's probably the reason he's flitting everywhere is trying to keep warm. But what are you eating? And then I all of a sudden thought of some of these verses where Jesus talks about taking care of the birds. This is actually theology. 
He says, the reason that bird's alive is because your father actually cares for a little bird. He cares for a raven. He cares for a sparrow. And to those of us here today who are having a hard time making ends meet, he says, if he cares for that little bird, you don't think he cares for you? You don't think he cares for you? Now the thing is, if you're going to let Jesus take care of you, you're going to need the opposite of covetousness. You're going to need contentment. And I'll tell you why you're going to need contentment. Because if you let Jesus take care of you, there's no promise here that he will take care of you to the level of your covetousness. That's not the promise. The promise isn't, ha, he feeds the ravens. You can afford a $200,000 house. He'll make your $500,000 house payments. There's no promise here that he's going to take care of you to the level of your covetousness. That I have a certain level because I have a certain level that I consider needs because I compare myself to everybody else. And actually, I've totally lost, that, lost track of reality. But now I'm relying on Jesus because of this promise to take care of my massive amount of debt because I have to have the newest phone and the nicest clothes and a brand new car and a bigger house and all sorts of stuff. This is not what this promise is. It is not a promise that Jesus takes care of the birds. He will take care of your covetousness. No. But if you're willing to be content and live, live within the circle of the means he's entrusted to you and live your life on a mission, this is an ironclad promise. He will take care of all your needs. But the thing is, you're going to have to embrace contentment. Contentment is the opposite of covetousness. Covetousness is stressful. I'm constantly comparing. How do I look? What do I have? What do I drive? What, where do I get to go on vacation? I'm constantly comparing. Covetousness is stressful. It, dry, it fuels debt, which is stressful. It's stressful. Contentment is the opposite of stressful. Jesus has actually given really good advice here. You can't be content and stressed at the same time. I dare you to try it right now in a message, okay? Just sit there and be content and then try and get stressed out when you're content. You can't. Jesus says there's a much better way to live. Contentment is one of the most beautiful, amazing gifts. Philippians 4, 11 to 12, Paul talks about contentment. He says this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned, learned, in whatever situation I am to be content. You know one of the things that stinks about being in a sin-broken world? Is that covetousness comes naturally, but contentment has to be learned. None of us has to learn to be covetous. You ever, real, ever notice that? I've got four kids. I never taught them to be covetous. Unless my wife, LaDawn, who's here today, has been teaching them to do that behind my back. You know, your father's never going to show you how to do this, so let me just show you how. Um, <laughs> they just, they, they're just born that way. And you give something to one of the kids, and I want that one. It's mine. I want bigger. I want... They're just born with it. And so you're just born into this stressful, comparing, debt-fueling thing called covetousness. Paul says there's actually a totally different way you can live, but you're going to have to learn it. And you know, the, the letter to the Philippians is one of the last letters Paul ever wrote. He's writing this near the end of his life. I imagine that this is, uh, this is a, something he learned. Contentment was a secret he learned over the course of his lifetime. You're going to have to pursue it. And, uh, and he goes on, he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. He knew how to be content with nothing. He also knew how to be content with much. Actually, being content with much can sometimes be harder. It's often the more we have, the more we compare and the more we want. 
Paul says, I actually know how to be content with nothing, and I know how to be content with a lot. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. That's a secret I want. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. If we're going to have contentment, it's not just going to happen because you sat here today and heard me say the words contentment. It's something you're going to have to pursue. It's something you're going to have to pursue and pray about. It means pursuing regularly. I've been talking so much at this church, and Stefan has, and our staff, we've been talking so much the last couple of years about gratitude, literally pursuing a lifestyle of gratitude. In your devotional life every day, being grateful for the good things God has given you. That's the opposite of covetousness. You've got to attack covetousness with gratitude. And the other thing is just confession. To start to have our eyes open in your devotional times, to start to recognize the places where we're being driven by comparing and envy and covetousness. That I can't be satisfied with whatever I have. I can't be grateful for it because nobody else has it like that. They all have it better. Let's go back to Jesus' Sermon on Money and keep going. Verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his, li to his life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith. You can trust him to take care of your needs. If you are willing to live with contentment and live your life on mission, you can, you can absolutely trust him. These are promises that he cannot break to take care of you. Now we're beginning to come towards the end of his message. In verse 29, he says this, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Think about that. I'm going to read that again. Let these words, let these words sink in. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Where you are to live, it's not to consume our lives. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. There's supposed to be something different about a born-again believer. We're not controlled by our stuff. All the nations of the world do that. But we're a different people. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father, this is the beautiful thing, knows that you need them. He's not asking you to just go out and live on the street somewhere. He knows that you need them. Just don't live for it. Instead, now this is what I love, he's not going to end with the negative. Jesus doesn't just tell us, don't be covetous, don't be covetous, don't be covetous, don't be covetous. If your whole mission plan is, I just got to stop being covetousness, you can't stop being covetous unless you start doing something else. And he's going to give us a positive. This is what you do do. It's not just stop being this. This is how you stop. You, you stop by starting something else. And here's what he says. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. He will take care of you. He knows you need a house. He knows you need a vehicle. He knows you need these things. Seek his kingdom first, though. Seek his kingdom. Instead of living for your house, live for his kingdom kingdom and he will take care of your house seek his kingdom first verse 32 i love this fear not little flock that's why i told you before he's not mad it's a little flock my little sheepies right fear not my little lambs my little sheepies for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom and i'll look at the next one it kind of sets us up with the left jab and then pow 
sell your possessions and give to the needy, okay? Now again, we know from all scripture, okay? Jesus is not asking us to actually go and do this and then become a burden to the church. I don't want to have to take care of you all. So keep living in your house. Keep feeding yourself and working to provide for your family. Absolutely. Okay? But his point here is, and he's making a strong point. Do not live for your possessions. So many Christians are caught up in this rat race. And they're just work, 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 work. Buy, 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 buy. Work, make the payments, debt. Oh my goodness, stress. Going, 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 going. You're going to get to the end of your life and you didn't live for a mission. You live for your stuff. And it's not that you ever sat down and made a choice to do that. You just got caught up in the rat race and you did it. Jesus, sell your possessions. In that case, get rid of it all. If that's what it's going to be, live for a mission. Step back and say, it's not about my possessions. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Now the last verse and a half here. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. How many of you knew there were money bags in heaven? I want to get money bags in heaven. Big, fat money bags in heaven. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. This is an RRSP retirement plan for eternity. Okay? Think about this. You can't take your house with you to heaven. You can't take your car with you to heaven. You can't take any of your stuff with you to heaven. But if you invest your money in his kingdom, taking care of the needy, the church, the Great Commission, you can actually store up for yourself treasures in heaven for eternity. This is Jesus saying, I want to bless you. I want to bless you. And look at this. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. My question to you this morning is, is your heart on your treasure in heaven or is your heart on your treasure here on earth? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want to finish with three, just coming out of this, this message of Jesus, I want to finish with three very practical thoughts, applications, things to think about and pray about this week. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the general gist of these practical uh, challenges I'm going to give you is this. As Christians... We don't want to live with our budgets maxed out to live in the, to have the nicest vehicle, the nicest house, and the nicest vacations that we can possibly afford. The gist of what I'm about to show you, the biblical gist of it is, we want to live so well within our means that we have plenty left over of heart space and budget space to live for the kingdom. How do we do that? Three things. Number one, and I talked about this already, I won't spend much time here, buy a house you can afford which means where you can continue to be generous, not one that will enslave you, okay? And again, this is not a message. I want to say this again because I want to make so clear what I am not saying. I am not saying everybody must live in a small house. If a million-dollar house is within your means, so far within that you can continue to be extravagantly generous and to live on mission and not be stretched in your budget, then live in a million-dollar house and use that million-dollar house for Jesus. But if you can only afford a $200,000 house or a $100,000 house, 
Don't live in a $300,000 house or a $500,000 house. Live with, so far within your means that you can live the rest of your life financially and in your heart on a mission. Secondly, avoid bad debt as much as possible. And some, again, some of you are going to go, well, duh. And some of you are wise. You're wise in this area. You know this already. But many people in the church are not wise. Many people in the church are not wise. They do not know that there is a big difference. I said it before, but I'll say it again. For young people, for middle-aged people, it's not just young people. I, I was going to say just young people, but I've met so many people in this church who struggle, and they're not young. But there is such a big difference between borrowing money for an investment like a house or something that's going to make you money and borrowing money for a car. Yes, you need a car, but remember that those are different kinds of borrowing. The money you borrow for a car is money you don't get back. The money you borrow to go to the movies and to buy your clothes and to go on a vacation, if you borrow $5,000 to go on a vacation, 10 years from now, you can't get that $5,000 back. Five days from now, after you've gone, five minutes, you can't get it back. It's been flushed down a hole. Now, if you can afford that and live on mission, yes. If you have to borrow to do that, that is bad debt. Avoid bad debt as much as possible. Credit cards. A credit card is something that, with very few exceptions, should only be used when you actually have the money already to pay it off. Some of you should be taking notes. Let me say it again. A credit card is something you should only, almost, I mean, there's always exceptions to anything. But a credit card is something you should almost never use unless you already have the money to pay it off. Some of you are like, what? Why do I have it then? It's free money. Yes, that's what the credit cards would like, companies would like you to believe. A credit card is something you should only use in order to take advantage of credit card companies. Which means you already have the money and you just want to take the points or the gifts that they want to give you. Okay? Taking advantage of credit card companies is a wonderful Christian thing to do. I commend you to do it. Okay? But don't become a slave to credit card companies. I looked up some statistics. I looked up some statistics yesterday. These are the most up-to-date statistics. So most credit cards charge anywhere from 15 to 20 percent interest. The average Canadian, as of 2016, the latest statistics, owes the average Canadian owes $4,000 on their credit card right now, 15 to 20 percent interest. You know what that is? That's slavery. But you know the thing, the, the thing that's even worse is the, the why, there's a group of wise people in Canada, they're actually pulling the average down. If you take some of the more wise groups of people out, actually the statistic is there are huge chunks of Canadians, that, of average Canadians, many, many tens of thousands who owe $6,500 to $7,000 or more every month on a credit card. That is slavery. And you know, it's not just the spirit of covetousness that's, that's driving it. One of the things that we see in the younger generations, and we're using broad strokes, not every young person, but just broad strokes, some of the, up, some of the younger that culture that's coming up today, is along with covetousness is there's this spirit of entitlement that's fueling credit card debt. 
It's like all my friends have a nice car. All my friends go to the movies. What kind of a life would I have if I couldn't maintain this style? They're all going out for dinner. How could I be happy if I don't go for dinner? It's a spirit of entitlement. Let me tell you something. The spirit of entitlement is a fleshly spirit at the very least, and probably in many cases, it is a demonic spirit. It is the opposite of contentment. It is fueled by arrogance and covetousness, and you will not be able to live your life on, mess, on mission if you are fueled and dominated by a spirit of entitlement. Actually, you don't have to go to every movie. You don't have to have, I have to have the latest phone. If you can afford it, great. If you can't, actually, too bad. Guess what? You don't get to bring your phone to heaven. I actually imagine that at Heaven's Gates there's going to be a massive, gigantic bucket. And everybody's cell phone's going to be in there. Check it at the door. No texting in heaven, right? Some of you are like, oh, I don't know what like. Spirit of entitlement. Let me give you the antidote to the spirit of entitlement. It's a spirit of generosity. Start you, what, what, if, what if we all took on this challenge? What if, instead of racking up our credit cards and going to the bank and taking out the maximum, you know, it's funny, the banks recommend 28 to 32% of your gross income for a mortgage. It's funny to me how many people don't view that as a max. They view that as the advice. That's what I can get. That's what I should borrow. What if instead of borrowing as much as we can to buy as much as we can, we started on the other end of the spectrum and we started with giving? What if we actually took seriously the words of Jesus to seek his kingdom first? Not second, not third, not at the end with the leftovers. What if instead of starting with, let's make the budget of all the stuff we want to keep up with the Joneses and all the things we want to do, and then with whatever's left, hey, hopefully we can live a little bit on mission. That's not what Jesus challenged us to do. He said, seek my kingdom first, and then I will take care of you. What if we started our budgets with giving? What if we started every year by saying, this is how much I want to give as a percentage or as a total. This is how much I want to give. I want to give to the kingdom. I want to fuel the mission of the Great Commission through the local church. I want to have, I want to have money sitting around to help the needy, and to give to God's kingdom? What if we started with the generosity and said, this is how much I want to give, because actually I have a retirement plan for heaven, so I want to store up a certain amount of treasure there, so this is how much I want to give. And then now, with what's left, what kind of a house can I afford? What kind of a vacation can I afford? What kind of a car can I afford? What if we started a different way? Generosity is the antidote. Seek his kingdom first. And Jesus says, if you seek my kingdom first, I will take care of you. Why don't we take a moment and just listen? And then we're going to sing a final song of just commitment to Jesus. But why don't we just take a moment and listen and say, Lord, out of this message today, seek your kingdom first. We want to live in Jesus' ways. We want to store up treasure in heaven, not here on earth. Why don't we take a moment and listen and just let his Holy Spirit speak to each one of us. Maybe it's an encouragement. Maybe you're already on the right path. Maybe you're struggling to pay the bills right now and he wants to give you an encouragement. I'm going to take care of you. Or maybe he wants to give you a course correction that you've been seeking your own possessions first and his kingdom second. Whatever the case, I want to let him speak to us today. So bow your heads with me. Close your eyes. And let's just take a moment and listen. 
And if the Spirit stirs something in your heart, feel free to write that down. Take it home with you. Pray it over with your spouse or with your friends or family or whatever. But Lord Jesus, we just want to lift up a prayer to you today, Jesus. You have warned us. You have warned us for our good and for our eternal happiness and for your glory. You have warned us to seek your kingdom first. That actually it will be better for us if we seek your kingdom first. And we'll be able to drop so much anxiety and stress if we do. And we'll be able to experience happiness and purpose, living on mission. Lord Jesus, each one of us here today, would you speak to us this morning? Is there anything you want us to take out of this message? Is there anything you want us to change? Is there anything you want us to, to encourage us with? We invite you to do that this morning, Holy Spirit. Let's just take a moment and, and let him speak where he wants to speak. Father, we love you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We want to live for your kingdom. We love your kingdom. And we want to see your kingdom advance and the Great Commission completed in our lifetime. We want to see you come back and wipe away all of our tears and sorrows. So we thank you for your words today, Jesus. And we thank you for your encouragement. Help us to live these words out. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.